the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Worldview Media Podcast, where Gordon and Joyce Runyon view popular media through the lens of the biblical five-point covenant model to help believers appreciate and apply principles of exciting narrative and engaging storytelling. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Worldview Media Podcast. I'm your host, Gordon Runyon, and we have a special guest with us today. It's a regular listener to the show, my friend Jared Abbott. And uh, Jared, why don't you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit here? Uh, well, uh, I live with... Uh my uh, wife and little girl in the Knoxville area of East Tennessee. Uh, I'm pretty new to Christian Reconstruction. I've really only been a, a convinced Christian Reconstructionist for about a year or so. Uh, and uh, so I've really uh, been impacted a lot by the Reconstructionist Radio Network. Uh, really, Reconstructionist Radio, listen to the audiobooks is what convinced me. All right. And uh, I also love the movie Braveheart. <laughs> All right. Very good. Yeah. Uh, as Jared says, we're going to we're gonna do Braveheart here real fast. Let me ask, since you're a new Christian Reconstructionist, just for my curiosity, if you had to pin it down to like one book or one uh, preacher or whatever that kind of convinced you, what would you say about that? Hmm. Um, I would I would have trouble pinning it down to just one. Uh-huh. For me, uh, I really kind of came to Christian Reconstruction uh, through presuppositional apologetics. So oh right, yeah. I might say Greg Bonson, if anybody. Nice, nice. Yeah, Bonson was a big guy for me. Uh, for me, it was Doctor North's uh, book, Seventy Five Bible Questions Your Instructors Pray You Won't Ask. That really kind of rocked my world. <laughs> yeah, and Bonson was a big deal for me, too. All right, so on this episode of the Worldview Media Podcast, we're going to be taking a look at my favorite movie of all time, which is uh, Braveheart from Mel Gibson and his crew way back in the day. How long ago was that? Do you remember? It's It's been quite a while, I guess. 90s, so I think around 95 or so. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it's over 20 years. My yeah, I goodness. remember having the original VHS. Uh, <laughs> <two> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, breaking out the VHS reference. That's good. All right, brother. Well, tell me what you think about this movie and kind of a overall storytelling, uh, movie-making sort of way. Well, I mean, uh, um, I'd have to say it's my favorite movie. Okay. Uh, really kind of set the stage for a lot of movies that would follow these big battle epics. Oh, yeah. And it's just kind of a, a man's movie, you know? Uh, <laughs> right, uh, right. The men are men and women are women and, uh, you know, good wins over evil. And yeah, even if... get chopped off. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, good wins over evil, even uh, even though evil employs the tool of death to try to win. I uh, I'm with you on that. I just think it was a great movie. Uh, I was thinking about it just the other day, and the the 
the whole scenes, the whole set of scenes between King Edward Longshanks and uh, his son and his son's, uh, I guess, a gay lover. I guess uh, I was thinking about that and thinking, man, you just couldn't hardly make that movie like that today. It was, it was kind of. Right. It was kind of scandalous when it when it appeared in the 90s. That was still kind of seemed like it was maybe crossing a line or something, but it was pretty hilarious. He probably got away with it because Longshanks was considered an evil character anyway. So oh, right. There you go. Say, well, Longshanks a bad guy anyway. So <laughs> right. Of course he would kill the homosexual. <laughs> right. We're just illustrating what a villain he was. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. I still don't think he could get away with the portrayal of the of the two sodomites. So that that was just pretty. Today, no. It was pretty pretty hilarious at the time, though. I thought. Yeah, I I, I guess I join you in thinking it in terms of just the epic nature of the movie was just a big deal to me, and in terms of wow, the battle scenes were just. You could tell there was a lot of money spent on making everything look just right and really kind of putting you in the feel of those battles and, and all of that. And I didn't even know it at the time. I mean, I when I saw it, I had been a Reconstructionist for maybe a handful of years. and and uh, But there was something about the underlying current of the struggle between liberty and tyranny there that really caught hold of something inside me and and probably fair to say it's affected me since then i still kind of feel like you know if if william wallace was alive today i'd just slap some blue paint on my face and and go join him you know and uh so it's it's been kind of a big deal for me uh, me too even before i was a christian reconstructionist i kind of leaned uh, libertarian in my politics, and so you know, I think it appeals to any American patriot. <laughs> right. You know, even though nowadays England is probably one of our greatest allies, yeah. we still you know uh, cheer for anybody who is fighting the violent English oppressor because <laughs> that's part of our history too. Yeah, you're probably right. Probably right. Well, I kind of join you, and I think we both said this is our favorite movie. So, as far as letter grades go for me, I, I think that that means I'd have to give it an A plus, and and uh, I don't have much to detract about it, really. Well, as far as just the movie goes, I I wouldn't say there's any much, anything much to detract. The only thing that really sours it for me is if you're kind of nerdy like me like to dig around and see what the history was <laughs> when I did that uh, I found out that it was not a very historically accurate movie <laughs> right. at all right. so that kind of sounded <laughs> a little bit but I still want to say it's my favorite movie just because it's a great story even though right. Yeah, I now know most of it is legendary. Right, I, I kind of did the same thing and was really disappointed to find out that the story of Wallace being betrayed by William the Bruce is almost certainly not true, and uh, that, that did kind of bum me out a little bit. He did get betrayed apparently, but it wasn't by, it probably wasn't by the Bruce. Uh, yeah, he definitely was betrayed. They're not sure who. There's different guesses as to who. <laughs> right. And then uh, uh, the whole uh, Scottish Highlander thing, people running around in kilts, was anachronistic. That didn't even happen for like. 
500 years, it, it would be like if Mel Gibson had made the Patriot and had the Continental Army in digital camouflage. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, I didn't realize yeah, that. It would more like I think those counterparts. But yeah. uh, it probably makes more sense to people who don't know the history to have them that way anyway. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is kind of a bummer. But on the topic of the Bruce, though, I really felt like if there's one character in the whole movie that I have routinely found myself identifying with, it was Robert the Bruce and kind of his struggles in in observing what William Wallace was doing and instinctively knowing that he should be doing the same things. And yet he's held back by things like uh, the advice of his father and and conventions of the time and his own cowardice and and all of these things are holding him back from what he knows he really should be doing and pretty easy to identify with that kind of thing for me anyway. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that the guy who is the probably the most notable uh, nobleman is the guy who probably most people I would think would identify with in the sense that you look at somebody like a William Wallace and he's so larger than life and you think, I want to be like him. But most people, uh, they, they feel like they can't be like him for one reason or another. You got people like, uh, the father who's telling him he needs to be realistic and compromise, <laughs> right. yeah. and play the political game, uh, in order to get ahead. And he knows what's right and he wants to do what's right and he sees William Wallace doing it and he wants to follow him and uh, I think that's where a lot of people find themselves. Sure. Yeah, I think that's right. Or it's it's certainly been true for me, I would, I would say. The whole struggle to follow after Christ almost boils down to that kind of struggle for me. The How easy it is to compromise instead of you know, play the man and and do the right thing regardless of what it's going to cause in your life in terms of discomfort or, or whatever. For me, that's just a very, it's a very basic sort of struggle. <laughs> Especially, you know, when you think of it in terms of Christian Reconstruction, where we have a view that says that Christianity is a comprehensive worldview for every area of life. Right. And where that know really gets controversial especially is when you say well we need to apply biblical principles to the political realm yeah and uh other christians <laughs> are probably even more opposed to that sometimes than the unbelievers <laughs> right 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 yeah i've heard one preacher say that for a lot of christians they're they're really happy with anybody calling the shots except Jesus. There's something there's something uncomfortable about that. They don't want his law to be the one that's actually running things. Anybody else is fine, but but not the Lord. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's that's kind of crazy. I was gonna say too, as we we're talking more about Robert the Bruce, that I think probably my favorite scene in all of cinema involves the last bit where Robert the Bruce is talking to his uh, leprous father and it's after his father has betrayed him and William Wallace and gotten and gotten Wallace turned over to the king and 
And uh, the Bruce says, or his dad tells him, because he can obviously see he's really upset. And he says, at last you've learned to hate. Now you're ready to be a king. And and the Bruce just says in this icy cold sort of thing that my hate will die with you. And I just thought, I just thought, man, I was like, you know, pumping the air with my fist at that and stuff. That was, that was pretty cool. (laughs) All right. Well, exciting. So let's uh, go ahead and have our break and our word from our sponsor and we'll come back and apply the points of the covenant to try to discern what worldview this movie is preaching to us. Uh, We'll be right back. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. And we're back. Worldview Media Podcast. We're looking at the movie Braveheart from way back when in the day... Uh, before all my hair fell out and my beard turned gray and and uh, I'm here with our friend Jared and we're gonna we're gonna try to apply the biblical covenant to this bit of, bit of media to try to discern what kind of worldview is being preached to us uh, the first point of the biblical covenant is transcendence and here's where we Try to discern what the ultimate power is in the media that we're looking at. Who calls the shots? Who who makes the rules? Who's the creator and redeemer and sustainer? And uh, you got any ideas about that, Jared? Well, definitely the transcendent theme of the movie, and you know they don't exactly try and be subtle about it or hide it. Is freedom? Oh yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's the constant theme. Yeah. That's the last thing he cries out at the end of the movie. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the entire time, uh, that's his motivation. At least once he once he gets fighting. Right. Uh, and it, it's also kind of interesting from a Christian perspective as you're looking at an era, uh, you know, that is ostensibly Christian, right. where you know on both sides, even though they call Longshanks a pig at the beginning, <laughs> it's pretty obvious they're just using that as kind of a in a very loose sense, they're just kind of calling him a name like he's a bad guy. Right, it's a pejorative, right, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, you see uh, William Wallace, they kind of, for the most part, portray him as a very pious Roman Catholic, which I'm sure uh, Bill Gibson's very uh, pro 
traditional Roman Catholic, <laughs> right, yeah. very traditional Roman Catholic believes in Latin Mass and all that. So I'm sure he really pushed for that in the movie. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, from what I've read in the history, there does seem to be some truth to that as far as what they say. I bet. Although it's, it's really hard to say since William Wallace is such a legendary figure, but, you know, if he was, that would make sense yeah. given the time and the place. And, uh, even Longshanks, if you study the history, he's he's pretty pious. He fought in the Crusades, you know. Oh wow! Uh, I wasn't aware of that. That's a good bit of info. <laughs> yeah, you do notice that because both sides in the in the battles have priests walking up and down the ranks, you know, throwing holy water on them and and blessing everybody. And uh, oh, yeah. so ostensibly, it's a it's a Christian worldview. You know, they the characters pray to the Christian God and expect an answer and, and contemplate things like eternal life and salvation and all of that. And I think you made a good point that uh, that really transcendence is shown in the fact that throughout this big long movie, uh, it's obvious that the good guys believe that there is a higher law above whatever is whatever edicts are passed down from the king you know they they obviously believe in a transcendent law that even the king is subject to whether or not he wants to be and right. and i think that's just a a fantastic you know whatever movies we can have that will make that point i i'm all in favor <laughs> we need that more and more you know and uh, yeah and so I'm all in favor of having a movie that just hammers that. And that's kind of a constant theme. And, and of course, uh, William Wallace's line when he's on trial, they accuse him of treason and kind of an interesting concept where he said, uh, how can I be treasonous toward a King? I, I never swore allegiance to. And, well, it doesn't matter. He's your king, whether you swear it or not. And <laughs> you know, lots of authority claims going on there. Right. I, I'd actually listened to a podcast recently, and it was done by uh, some kind of British historian. And I guess this this guy's main work is reviewing all the different ancient chronicles of uh, you know the British Isles and stuff. And uh, I guess one part of the movie that they they kind of vaguely allude to because you have a guy mention the name Balliol oh, yeah. uh, historically before Longshanks really took over Scotland. The king was a guy by the name of John Balliol, and I guess he rebelled at some point, and that's how Longshanks eventually got power over Scotland. And he made everybody uh, pay homage. He actually traveled to Scotland, made all the nobles pay homage and swear fealty to him, and they documented it. Oh, and yeah. uh, the historian said, and conspicuously, William Wallace is nowhere, you know, in this document. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was reading about that same instance, and the the bit of that that I found interesting was that uh, when when the King John Balliol was acting up, and the other nobles were getting upset with him and didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, Longshanks didn't just take the opportunity to come in and take over, but they requested him to come in and 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 get a handle on yes. Balliol. And I thought I that was to choose between Balliol and the 
so he chose Balliol. <laughs> right. Which was, he, he had some claim to the throne, but he was also kind of viewed as the weaker option, which is probably why <laughs> Longshanks chose him, because uh, even though Longshanks was somewhat of a pious Christian, he was also very ambitious. He had just conquered part of Wales, and he really wanted to unite the entire island sure. of Britain under his rule. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I think I was reading somewhere that the Scots began to call John Balliol a name that basically meant empty suit or you know, empty jacket or you know he's just kind of a kind of a weak uh puppet of longshanks in in no time at all <laughs> didn't do much to stand up to his when he became a tyrant over Scotland yeah that's really interesting okay so uh transcendence in the movie then i think it's obviously a catholic christian uh view of god and and the fact that obeying God is a higher duty than obeying man when the two are in conflict. And and uh, that all seems uh, really neat. And, uh, well, that's good to me. I'm, I'm happy about that. It's biblical. And so that's pretty cool. And then we get to section two of the covenant, which is hierarchy or representation and if God is this God who has a higher law, then who in the movie really stands for that? Who who exemplifies that? I guess for me, the easy answer is William Wallace, because his whole thing is about constantly appealing to that. I don't know if you have some other idea. or. Yeah, he definitely, he represents the uncompromising uh, stand for... Um, liberty, uh, specifically Christian liberty, uh, on the basis of that higher moral law, at least after they, uh, they, uh, dispatch his wife sure. and, uh, you yeah. know, he kind of wakes up from his slumber because before that, you know, he's, he's really wanted to stay peaceful and keep quiet and, and not get involved in, the, in right. the wars right. that are going on. But once that happens, I guess something within him realizes he can't just, uh, pretend like the English are not oppressing the Scottish people at that time, that somebody needs to rise up. And, you know, he's all, already uh, gone after this, uh, uh, the Sheriff of Lanark, yeah. taking him yeah. out. And so, <laughs> you know, now that he's done that, he may as well go all the way. And, you know, of course, in the movie, right. he even goes so far as to attack England itself. <laughs> right. And go, go outside the of Scotland. So. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, the movie at least portrayed it like once he killed the sheriff in revenge for his wife, uh, the die was cast at that point. There's no going back. The English weren't going to let him just, you know, call an end to it there. He's got to go full bore <laughs> at that point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I did find something, as you were saying it, it strikes me that uh, we kind of find ourselves in that same place in America. If you, if you accept the fact that we live under a, a representative democracy that has turned into a, a mob rule sort of oligarchy uh, and tyranny, uh, we kind of, I think the normal desire for 
peace-loving people is to see if we can avoid conflict and and stay out of the wars like William Wallace was saying. And uh, uh, it's just my conviction that eventually that trouble is going to find you at some point as much as oh, we yeah, might. The, the guys who, who ran the Sweet Cakes Bakery. I'm oh, sure. sure. They didn't want any trouble. Absolutely. Now, you know, they're activists yeah. for uh, religious liberty. Right. So. Well, and I was just thinking about the the gains on TV, on HGTV, Chip and Joanna, and how, you know, they didn't do anything to offend anybody except be like the nicest people in the world. And and their crime was that they went to a church that preaches the Bible, and and, uh, and that just can't be. And now, you know, they've got people after them. And uh, I just think it, it, trouble's going to find you. <laughs> it, it really is because... Uh that slippery slope that that uh, you know ministers in the past would warn about. You know, if we allow uh, the LGBT community or whatever anti-Christian community to do this or that, they're not just going to be satisfied with sure. their right to exist. You you are coming into this place now where they not only want us to acknowledge that what they do is okay which we can't do as Christians, obviously. But in addition to that, they want to be celebrated. They want to right. be affirmed. They want to be uh, told that what they're doing is actually good. Right. And anybody that questions that, whether you know they do it implicitly or explicitly, is going to be marked for persecution. And sure. Even though you know, it's not anywhere as bad as maybe uh, in Islamic countries. Right, yeah. You know, if, if somebody doesn't stand up, it will get that bad. Well, I think you're right. And and uh, don't you think it, it becomes like a de facto religious test oath that is required of all citizens? You know, when they're wanting you to not just leave them alone and not just fail to harass them, but they want you to affirm them and celebrate what they're doing. Man, if you don't, if you don't, you know, put the pinch of incense on the fire and and uh, praise the genius of the empire, you're you're gonna be in trouble for that. That's a act of rebellion, you know. So off with your head. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So uh, I just uh, like you. It sounds like I watch this movie or think about it and just see, man, this is 2016 United States of America going on here. <laughs> and I say that I'm, I'm sitting like a foot away from my replica William Wallace sword hanging on the wall. In front of me. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, man. So, uh, William Wallace obviously represents that desire to live by the law of God rather than by the law of tyrants. And, uh, I think at the toward the end of the movie, Robert the Bruce, who doesn't spend the movie representing that, he kind of comes around to that at the end, and that was kind of a neat transition to see there. Yeah, I like the way they do it in the movie, even though, like we discussed, it's not anything like the history. <laughs> right. He didn't go there, you know, intended to pay homage to the king, and then he's just like, oh well, I guess I'll fight for Scottish independence and they fall on warrior poets but it does make for a really good story right it does make for a really good movie yeah that's right that's right 
uh, kind of catch the English by surprise there like that. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. That was a great scene. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great scene. Yeah, I guess at some point, I don't mind that they took a little bit of license for the sake of telling a, a really good story and making a great movie. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely like the movie version. I wish it had, it had happened that way, but I, I'm still kind of <laughs> glad that they fought for it. <laughs> right, right. I kind of wish they still would. Uh, let's see. Then we go to part three of the covenant, which is ethics. And this is talking about duties and responsibilities of, of all the sides that are involved in the covenant and, uh, kind of the way we have found to analyze ethics in, in this setting is to ask the question about moral dilemmas and how characters meet up with those moral dilemmas, how they deal with them. And, uh, do you have any in your mind right away? Well, I mean, in addition to the overarching theme of fighting for freedom against oppression, I think another interesting theme uh, throughout the story is William Wallace, right from the beginning, when his father's going to ride out and fight the English, he wants to go too, and his father says, he says, I can fight, and his father says, I know you can fight, (laughs) but it's our wits that make us men. Oh, yeah. And then his father dies for the cause, of course, and his uncle Argyle comes and is going to be his guardian now, and uh, William Wallace is checking out his his awesome huge sword, and (laughs) he says, learn to use this, and he points to his head, and then I'll teach you to use this. Right. So before he goes to war, he gets educated and he's smart, and that's kind of also a hallmark throughout the movie is even though the Scots are kind of uh, a ragtag bunch. They don't have much armor. They don't have as great weapons. They don't have this massive army. But William Wallace is able to uh, think and figure out and problem solve yeah. and outwit the English, and that's how he gets his military victories. Yeah, I've kind of wondered about that and wondered if that's a bit of a historical anomaly as well. I mean... Pretty obviously after, I mean, during the period of the Reformation and and from that point forward, at least among the Protestants in Scotland, education has always been a super huge big deal. And, you know, men like John Knox were were emphatic about making sure that everybody in Scotland was educated. I just kind of wonder if maybe that more modern uh, sensibility was recast back a little bit earlier. <laughs> It probably is, and I know particularly uh, in that first major battle that they're at where he gives his great speech about what we do about freedom, that <laughs> yeah. was Sterling. I mean, uh, the actual name of the battle in history is the Battle of Sterling Bridge. Yeah. And in the in the movie, he does this brilliant military maneuver, and somehow he convinces these nobles who've never really heard of him before to do what he wants, but... Uh, in real history, the reason that the Scots won the Battle of Stirling Bridge is because the English had to come across Stirling Bridge, and it was apparently very narrow, and only like two or three of them across the time at a time, so basically the Scottish just kind of picked them off. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I was reading about that myself. It, it uh, 
seem pretty. Uh, it it seems so simple. You wonder how the how the professional British Army got caught in a trap like that <laughs> and allowed that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of funny. Well, the one of the big ethical dilemmas that has kind of always puzzled me is I wondered how much of William Wallace's fight against the British especially at the beginning, how much of it was motivated by revenge and how much of it was really this kind of idealistic quest for freedom for his, for his country. I, I think it probably ended when his, when his life ended, I think he was probably a great patriot and, and had that as a top priority. But I've kind of always wondered how much of that we were supposed to see as being really just more motivated by avenging the murder of his wife and his brother and, and his father before. Yeah, I, I kind of tend to agree. I think that first skirmish you know, where they take out the local magistrate, Sure, that's probably... That was all revenge. revenge, right. Yeah. And then when he's done it, he's like, well, I guess I kind of have to fight the English now. <laughs> right. And then all these other you know, Scottish Highlanders come down to join him and then he's like, well, I guess it's uh, it's going to be a, a patriotic war against the English oppressor now. <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely starting out, it's probably more revenge than, than uh, justice. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and the, we kind of already mentioned my other big ethical dilemma was just the whole uh, – inner turmoil with Robert the Bruce and his conflict with his dad and his dad kind of being the embodiment of pragmatism and, and compromise. And then I thought it was a really interesting cinematic choice to have his, the dad that's constantly urging compromise and corruption, basically to have him be wasting away with leprosy the entire time. I thought that was a, a, a neat bit of symbolism there, but, what a, you know, for me, that was probably the most powerful ethical dilemma in the movie was Robert the Bruce's struggles with just being the man he was supposed to be, as we mentioned. Right, and there's also kind of the, the struggles of the queen, or not the queen, but the princess, right. who will become a queen once yeah. Longshanks dies, where she uh, she's a little bit silly with the romantic... <laughs> uh, you know, ideas right. of the time, but she also clearly believes in in something more like chivalry and ethics. Yeah. Whereas Longshanks kind of mocks that. He obviously thinks that that's kind of weak and a, a woman's woman's way of thinking. And uh, you kind of see who wins that in the end, even though uh, we wouldn't approve of the adultery. Right. You know. Right. I, I gotta say, there's probably a small part of us is kind of when you find out at the end that she's pregnant with William Wallace's baby. Yeah. It kind of goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your line's gonna die now. <laughs> you, you right. Reap what you sow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm reading through. Uh, I've been reading through Judges and First and Second Samuel, and and uh, what you just described is really not alien to how God has moved in history in the past, and that sort of thing does happen. Absolutely, He'll take a something bad like adultery and, uh, right. and use it to uh, stop the 
forces of evil anyway. So. Sure. Yeah, that, that's right. Well, very good. Uh, let's see. Something else had floated through my mind, but I seem to have lost it. Maybe I'll get it back. Uh, the fourth point of the covenant is sanctions, and we talk about whether or not the movie is consistent concerning its transcendence and who represents that and the ethical dilemmas. Do the do the characters get what is consistent with this worldview in terms of how they're rewarded for their actions? Uh, you you kind of hinted at this right at the very beginning where you, where you mentioned that uh, good triumphs over evil and in spite of death and in, in spite of the king doing the very worst that he could to William Wallace. Uh, it's clear at the end of the movie that William Wallace wins, you know, even as he's dead, he wins. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of interesting, uh, kind of a foreshadowing of the passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's later movie. <laughs> yeah. There's some pretty obvious parallels sure. put in the movie, uh, making William Wallace almost an archetype of Christ, yeah. where yeah. he is on this... Uh, I don't know what you, some kind of frame that looks an awful lot like a cross. Sure. Tortured. Yeah, he was. He dies for the cause, but even dying for the cause, the cause only gets stronger. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then you can almost see uh, Robert the Bruce taking up his his cloth that Murrin made for him and, and uh, taking up his cause. That's, you know, uh, not to get too mystical or anything, but... You know, Robert the Bruce becomes almost the the resurrected William Wallace in terms of embodying again everything that he was fighting for. And the English thought they had done away with this rebellion by killing William Wallace, but but it's really just as strong, if not stronger. And uh, right, if uh, if the Scottish Wars of Independence under William Wallace are the, the symbolically anyway the Gospels, then. The continuation of the wars <laughs> under Robert de Bruce is the Book of Acts. Yeah, very and nice. <laughs> historically, at least for a while, they did get their independence. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, uh, and then I thought it was good that, like we said, that Robert the Bruce's dad wastes away from leprosy, and and King Longshanks wastes away some kind of consumption or tuberculosis or something, and he just lingers in agony and kind of foreshadowing what's coming his way. And, you know, even when he hears the news that his line will die with him, he, he's too weak to do anything about it. And, uh, right, and his son's obviously not very strong either. Right. So right. it's not like he's going to do anything about it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that power, that kingship, that authority that, that he spent his whole life attaining and, and using as he's, as he's breathing his last, he can see this is all slipping away and everything I worked my whole life for and, and loved is it's gone. Even as I'm watching it drain away here. Well, yeah, he's really funny in the end got what was coming to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And those kind of movies, they really are. <laughs> the movie has done a good job when you get to that point and it's just really satisfying. <laughs> it is satisfying. And they do it in a believable way and not in this 
weird, like, well, that's really cool that that happened, but yes. it would never happen that way. No, it could have happened that way. <laughs> sure. It didn't happen exactly that way in history, but he, he didn't die long after William Wallace was executed. Right. But, uh, yeah, that was neat. That's neat. I always think as a storyteller and somebody who's concerned about narrative and stuff like that, that you really do yourself no favors by coming up with kind of a weak villain. You know, the the stronger and more deadly and more dastardly you can make your villain, the better off your story is. And, uh, oh, yeah. You know, nobody's going to care if your bad guy gets what's coming to him unless he has seriously been a bad guy and, and a real threat. And and so I appreciate that about this movie, too. Yeah, postmodernism doesn't make for good stories. <laughs> There's going to be real good and real evil. There's going to be real right and wrong. Yeah, and, right. Uh, I think we all know that. In our heart of hearts, even though some people would disagree with that on the surface. Yeah, and a little pet peeve of mine in this, I think uh, particularly one place where you see this is in the James Bond franchise and how it has changed in the portrayal of its villains over the course of decades where in the beginning they were kind of comic book figures who were just bad guys. And then they <clears throat> they started <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> they started trying to make the bad guys like three dimensional, and then they moved from three dimensional to making them uh, sympathetic. Until now, we're at the point where when the bad guy dies, you almost kind of feel sorry for him and stuff like that. And I just think that's bad for storytelling. Like I said, postmodernism. Really <laughs> uh, you can make characters three dimensional. Yeah, but. You need to have good guys and bad guys. I mean, sure. You read novels of somebody like Dostoevsky, and he has plenty of three-dimensional characters. <laughs> yeah. There, there's still some bad guys, and there's still good guys, and there's some, you know, they're in between, sure, but yeah. there's still that that uh, good and evil ethos. There. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, likewise, that's one of the things I appreciate about my favorite novelist, who has always been Stephen King, is that, you know, his bad guys are super bad guys, but they're realistic. And and uh, like you said, you don't have to make them sympathetic in order to make them three-dimensional. And, right, and, yeah. and then when they get what's coming to them, you can, you know, like I said, pump your fist in the air and, and be excited that good has triumphed here. You don't have to be wishy-washy and wonder if that's really a good thing or not. Uh, let's see. The last point of the covenant is section five, which is succession. And how is this whole arrangement going to continue into the future? And we kind of just touched on that. We saw that, uh, William Wallace is at least in this story, he's, he's the, actually the father of the, uh, the princess and the her baby and and so when she ascends to the throne as queen uh it's going to be wallace's son and not not longshanks who who takes the kingdom and uh that's a pretty big deal in terms of succession <clears throat> yeah that's a huge deal because uh <laughs> you know the whole thing i mean they could have just ended the movie with uh william wallace being executed and Sure. We would all feel really bad about William Wallace. <laughs> oh, I wish he would have lived. But 
Yeah, exactly. Where Robert the Bruce decides finally he's not going to compromise anymore, but he's going to stand up against uh, the English oppressor. Right, right. And I think think we kind of we're kind of obliquely touching on the concept of leadership and what it means to be a leader. And we see during the movie a couple of times, William Wallace encouraging Robert the Bruce to be that leader. It's almost like he's, you know, little moments of discipleship and mentoring. And, uh, and then by the, because before he has that little kind of heart to heart, right. Uh, with Robert the Bruce, Robert the Bruce is, He's almost kind of lost. <laughs> right. And William Wallace is just like, uh, you know, if you would just, you know, wake up and lead the people of Scotland, I would follow you. <laughs> right. And I think right. that, that yeah. really takes Robert the Bruce back. He's like, you follow me? <laughs> yeah. Like John the Baptist does. Uh, should you baptize me? <laughs> kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's a big deal in terms of leadership and, that's one way of ensuring that the the organization continues. It's a, it's a horrible thing when you have a church or some kind of ministry that's led by, you know, one charismatic individual who uh, finally leaves or retires or dies. And, and the whole thing shuts down because he was the motive force. And uh, so it, it was nice. Oh, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> I grew up in, in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, so... Oh, yeah, right. That's, that's everything you just said written large. <laughs> right, where every CBN. church... Yeah, every church congregation is just an extension of the personality of the pastor or the worship leader or something like that. And yeah, it's a, trying to ape a celebrity pastor. <laughs> or some kind of combination of the two. <laughs> right. Right. It's a deadly uh, deadly recipe right there. And so I think the biblical model then is is obviously much more wise in terms of you you can have a lead elder maybe who who is responsible for helping to disciple and train other elders and uh, uh even secular leaders will tell you that that one of the leader's primary primary jobs is to replace himself or make himself expendable. And I, absolutely, I mean, in the Bible, uh, Jesus tells us that the greatest among you will be the servant. Yeah, and he'll yeah. be the he'll be the leader. And then, you know, of course, in Ephesians, it gives that whole fivefold ministry yeah, yeah. model of leadership. But then it says. The purpose of the leaders is to equip the saints for the sure. work of the ministry. Yeah, amen. So, in other words, most of the ministry is supposed to be done by regular Christians. <laughs> yeah, no They're doubt. Just the ones equipping <laughs> everybody else, right? Instead of by the instead of having it all be the job of whoever the superhero is behind the pulpit or whatever. Right, yeah. and William Wallace, as great as he was, uh, you know, in the movie, he probably would not have got nearly as far as he did without his close circle of friends. Like oh, no Shana, doubt. No doubt. was right there by his side. Yeah. Right. Some of were stout warriors, but were uh, just absolutely loyal to him, no matter what the cost. Right. And then proved that they were loyal to anyone that was doing the right thing, you know. And so that was a that was a neat thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were with Robert Bruce at the end, too. Right. 
Well, brother, I think we've I think we've accomplished our mission here. I think we have. Is there anything else you want to bring up or something about this movie we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? No, I think we pretty much covered everything that uh, you know, I kind of had in my mind. Oh, good. That we might talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous. My favorite movie is like over three hours long, and we're trying to make a 45-minute podcast. <laughs> 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 That's very true. <laughs> well, good thing. Oh, the other deal that I wanted to mention is fantastic soundtrack on this movie. I've got it on my Spotify and all that. Man, it'll get your blood pumping. <laughs> yeah, I think that was one of the first movies that people started buying, like the the motion picture soundtrack. To to. <laughs> oh, I remember hearing people was like, I Oh yeah, yeah, it was just fantastic. Well, I gotta admit, I was doing the soundtrack thing a lot earlier when I was when the very first Star Wars movie came out in like '76 or something. I bought that. I bought the vinyl album of the movie soundtrack and just. Uh, I probably listened all the grooves out of that thing, but it was it was crazy. I remember in the nineties, I, I don't even know where we got it, but somehow we got a eight track player. That somebody <laughs> had maybe the yard zone or something, and it had an eight track of the Star Wars soundtrack. Yeah, but it wasn't the actual motion picture soundtrack. It was the music played entirely by synthesizers. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a kind of a step down between an orchestra and a synthesizer yeah i didn't i never really got into it it's it kind of interesting to listen to a time or two and then it's kind of like okay well now the novelty's worn off i'll never listen to it <laughs> right and that's why we don't get to listen to eight tracks anymore All right, brother. Thanks for calling in. Uh, You helped me out a lot and uh, gave Joyce a a week off of the podcast, and she's happy for that. And uh, I think we nailed it, if I do say so myself. We did a pretty good job, and uh, I was glad to be of help, and uh, especially with it being my favorite movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, brother, we'll all sign off. And so on behalf of Jared, um, Gordon Runyon, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist in Tucumcari, and thank you for tuning in, and we will join you next week. God bless you as you seek to take dominion in every area for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Worldview Media Podcast. Please visit reconstructionistradio.com to check out the other podcasts in our network and to download our free audiobooks. <laughs>